That's, that was impressive. Um, as the building team has been working on the building part of this, the finance team has also been working with the bank and on the financial part of that. And sometime before Easter, which is late this year, it's on uh, April 20, sometime before that, but after spring break, we'll be back here. We, like I know how to explain all the finances. Someone from the finance team will be here to give you an update on that and tell you um, how we're going to try uh, to finish our, uh, the first part of our move uh, campaign and be able to break ground this year. We're not promising we're going to do that. It depends on our financial, our financial giving, but that's our hope and our goal. If we could, if we could hit that goal, it be really, would be really great. So uh, more to come on that. Matthew chapter 5, we're continuing our series in discipleship. This morning, we're going to finish out the Beatitudes. We're going to be looking at the eighth Beatitude, which is verses 10, 11, and 12, uh, but we're going to read all the, the Beatitudes in just a moment. But before we do that, I came across this article this week, not because I was looking for it. It just kind of happened on my screen, and this is an advice column kind of deal, and uh, I'll just read you part of it. Have you ever stopped to wonder if that guy you're interested in sees you as something more than just a friend? There are ways to know that don't involve awkward questions and potentially embarrassing moments for both of you, and all it takes is a little attention to details. The way he acts, talks, and dresses all contain hints about his feelings for you, and all you have to do is pick them up. Pay attention to his behavior. Most men will be on their best behavior around women they are interested in. Is he particularly polite, well-spoken, and gentle when he's around you? Make sure this isn't his standard behavior. Think about that for just a minute. (laughs) Observe him in a variety of situations and subtly ask his friends about his general behavior and if it changes when he's around you. Another very important thing to pay attention to is his conduct during conversations. Does he tend to agree with things you say or take interest in the things you're talking about? In that case, you might very well be on to something. You know, there's something to be said for subtly investigating a a potential relationship. There, There are times when kind of just sitting back quietly and kind of looking and observing is the best way to go. Although I'm really, I really hope she didn't mean what she wrote here. And is he particularly polite, well-spoken, and gentle around you? But make sure this isn't his standard behavior. So find a guy who's really great with you but a jerk to everybody else, and you'll just have a happy, happy life. Um, There are times when Jesus' teaching was subtle. There are times when, when Jesus told stories, and he challenged his listeners and his audience to, to think in ways maybe they hadn't thought before. What we're going to see this morning in the eighth beatitude is anything but subtle. And you have to ask yourself a question. Why is Jesus so intense in this last beatitude that he actually repeats himself and he actually changes the language when he repeats himself in order to create an emphasis on this last beatitude when every other beatitude is said, blessed are the, and this is it, and blessed are the, and this is it. But on the eighth beatitude... He feels the need to come back and kind of make sure he's, he's in the face of his listeners, that his disciples are not missing what he's saying. Hear the word of God, Matthew chapter 5. And he opened his mouth, Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, or they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to talk about persecution. Father, we, uh, we don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to experience this. We had wish that Jesus had changed this beatitude to say, everybody's going to like you and everybody's going to uh, smile and, and be thankful that you are part of their community when you are a Christian. And yet, Lord, this is such a stark transition from the rest of the Beatitudes that we must sit up and take notice. Clearly, the Lord Jesus is saying something here that is very, very important to all of his disciples. And for those of us that live in a, in a culture where we are, are not opposed violently, uh, where really all we have to withstand is, is some verbal abuse, perhaps, from time to time. Uh, this passage could be lost on us as far as application. Lord, I pray that wouldn't be so. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you want us to see this morning, not for other people in other parts of the world uh, who are suffering a different kind of persecution, but for us right here this morning, the family of Green Tree. Lord, I pray that you would move me aside, that you would not let my sin stand in the way. What you want us to learn this morning, my opinions are not important. It is only your eternal word that is of, of ultimate truth and ultimate importance to us. So we pray for that this morning. Lord Jesus, come and teach us. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, to be honest, it, it would be easy to just kind of skip over this passage of Scripture because, quite frankly, in, in Kirkwood and St. Louis and West County, you know, we don't experience a whole lot of persecution for the cause of Christ. Uh, but there may be good reasons for that, and there may be not so good reasons for that. And I think either way, this passage has a lot to teach us this morning about those who are disciples of Jesus. And I want to remind you that the Sermon on the Mount is there for all to read, there for all to, to explore and to study, but Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to men and to women who have said, you are my Lord and Savior. So for those of us who don't typically experience persecution in the way we think of persecution, uh, violence and being put in jail or losing your property or being martyred, where, what, what's here for us this morning? Well, let's kind of dig in and see what we find. The first thing, I want to give some observations on persecution, and the first is this. It's not if, but when. Jesus doesn't say you'll be blessed if you are persecuted. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you. Jesus doesn't put any type of parameters around it that would suggest that maybe there's some persecution or, or maybe there's not persecution. If you're a disciple of Jesus, there will be some opposition. Now, again, the opposition in our culture may be slight. It may be minimal. Maybe it's growing a little bit. Maybe in the last few years, uh, Christians are thought of less and less in positive terms and maybe more and more negative terms. But, but still, we could say we live in a country where we experience this very little. 
And yet Jesus is talking to all his disciples. He's talking to you and to me this morning. Why is that? Well, let's talk about what the word persecute actually means. If you, if you went to the, from the kind of the Greek to the English, the best word you would probably come up with is that word harass. It's somebody who stays after you and after you and after you. Think about that telemarketer who simply won't stop calling. You know, that person that just is going to, they're just not going to give up. And if you were ever in, in grade school and you had somebody that was picking on you and they just kept after it and after it and after or maybe you have an older brother or older sister, and I had one of each, and they were merciless with me. Actually, they weren't that bad. But sometimes big brothers and big sisters can harass. They can just keep kind of getting after you. And that's what that word means, to chase after, to harass, to be relentless, to not let go. Jesus says that's going to happen in a negative way. There are going to be people that always think Christians are just a bunch of goofballs. That, that they're foolish, that, that they're nonsensical, and that the world would be better off without them. The word revile out of verse 12, bless are you when you're reviled, is really a verbal disdain. It's the idea of someone mocking you or someone saying like, how could you be so foolish? How can you be so naive to really believe this, this book that's thousands of years old, that's filled with contradictions, that just has a bunch of myths in it? And how could you be so anti-intellectual as to be a follower of Jesus? That's just the silliest thing I've ever heard. That's reviling someone. And we do have some amount of that in our culture today. And then Jesus says, blessed are you when there are false accusations that are actually evil meaning that fundamentally they are wrong, they are opposed to God, against you. In other words, you fall into ill repute. Your reputation becomes among those around you a negative reputation, even though what I'm telling you is the truth of what they're saying to you is false. And the intent is to bring you into ill repute. So there's there's the definition of persecution And Jesus, again, says this is going to happen to his disciples. However, every other beatitude is in the third person, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's that's them, those merciful people. That's third person. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the third person. And this beatitude starts starts off exactly the same way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it seems, Jesus comes back in with the second person and reinforces it. It's almost like he looked around the circle of disciples. And, you know, he saw James nudging Peter and go, buddy, you better keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you're, you're the loudmouth one. You're the one he's talking to now. You're going to get persecuted because you just always have, you always have a, you know, an answer for somebody. It ain't going to happen to me, you know. I'm, uh, Peter, I'll be praying for you. You know, <laughs> hope it works out okay for you. And and everybody kind of has the same reaction to persecution when they think about it in those terms. Oh, it's too bad for those folks. Certainly, it will never happen to me. Perhaps that's what the Lord was thinking. But whatever was His motive, He came back and He said, "Blessed are you." It's almost like He's saying, "Guys, pay attention, listen carefully. This applies to you." Blessed are you. It's the only beatitude that's reinforced. And the second person, it's not about those, it's about you. And that's why the title of the sermon is, uh-oh. Because <laughs> I looked at it and I said, well, that means me. And I don't particularly like that. I, I don't want to be the object of persecution. And yet, if I'm a follower of Jesus, if I refuse to negotiate on that point, if I say he's my Lord and my Savior, and I can give on other stuff, but I can't give there, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be persecuted. Look at what Jesus says in, in uh, John's Gospel uh, right after the Lord's Supper, he, the night he's, uh, the Lord's being betrayed, and he says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then Paul really just springs, springboards off of that exact teaching when he's writing a letter to a young pastor named Timothy who's just getting his start in ministry in the ancient Roman world. And he says this to Timothy, Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it would be foolish for us, it would be naive for us to assume that this text has no application for us this morning. We don't know what today brings, we don't know what tomorrow may bring, and Jesus doesn't want to leave us in an an ambiguous place. He doesn't want us to be tempted to think he's not talking to me. He knows our frailty, he knows we may buckle if we're surprised by attacks, so he wants the application to be personal. That being the case, let's talk for a minute about the right reasons for persecution. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What does, what does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness? Well, by way of explanation, I would simply say this. It's the totality of the first seven beatitudes in both attitude and action. So if you are being poor in spirit, if you are being merciful, if you are being pure in heart, if you are being a peacemaker and you're persecuted for that, then you are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Listen to what John Stott says about this, because actually before I read Stott, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, I'd like to have a neighbor who's poor in spirit. I'd like to have a neighbor who's humble. I'd like people to live in my neighborhood who are merciful and extend mercy. Wouldn't everybody like to have these kind of people around them? And then I read Stott, and here's what he says, and I think he's got a great point. The world judges the rich to be blessed, not the poor, whether material or the spiritual sphere. The happy-go-lucky and carefree, not those who take evil so seriously that they mourn over it. Strong and brash, not meek and gentle. The full, not the hungry. Those who mind their own business, not those who meddle in other men's matters and occupy their time in do-goodery like showing mercy and making peace. Those who attain their ends, even if necessary by devious means, not the pure in heart, who refuse to compromise their integrity. Those who are secular, excuse me, those who are secure and popular and live at ease, not those who suffer persecution. I thought, that's really right. That's accurate. While those characteristics may be good, the base of, of that characteristic is found in our relationship with Christ. And so Jesus rightly warns his disciples that there will be moments when you do the right thing for the right reason, out of the right motive, and you are attacked for that behavior. I've been studying a little bit of Friedrich Nietzsche yesterday, and I don't, you may know this, you may all, a lot of you may know this, but Hitler actually based a lot of his philosophy of life on what Nietzsche said, and Nietzsche was no friend of Christianity, although his father was a pastor. Nietzsche was asked, what is more harmful than any vice? And here was his answer. Active sympathy for the ill-constituted and weak Christianity. There will be moments when you're persecuted for actively in your attitude and your actions following Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? That's okay. That's all right. One of our daughter churches, um, Riverside over in Webster Groves, we're, get, we're, we're getting ready to you know, try to build our building in, and they came across an old church that was for sale. And, and it had actually not been a church for years. It was, uh, there was a private owner of the property. And they got all the way to closing and everything was going great. They came into closing and the owner came in he said, hey, I've, I've learned some things about you. What's your position on marriage? And they said, we, we believe marriage is between one man and one woman. They said, so you're anti-gay. They said, 
we, we believe sin is sin, and that doesn't mean you can't come to our church. We would welcome anyone, no matter what their sexual preference, what, anything they had in their lives. But if you're asking us, can we condone sinful behavior on any level, whether it's not telling the truth or whether it's a sexual sin, no, we can't do that. And the, and the owner got up and he said, I'm not going to sell to a bunch of bigots, and he walked out of the room. That's okay. That's, that's all right, because you're standing for the Lord Jesus and his teaching. And you're seeking to honor him in your life, and not everyone is going to react in a positive way to that. And let me go down a side road for just a second. If our reaction to that, as people who claim to be disciples of Jesus, is anything less than loving that owner unconditionally and praying for that owner with an open heart and with asking God's best for that person, then we are out of the will of God. We are not following the Beatitudes, which we claim to be kind of our marching orders day in and day out. But Jesus says, if it's righteousness, that's okay. He also gives another uh, example of the right reason for persecution in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's very important to get that. The crime that you're committed is belonging to Jesus, that someone actually looks at you and, and sees that you're a follower of Jesus, maybe they see it in your actions or they hear it in your words and, and, and you're living under the gospel of the Lord Jesus and they say, you know what, I don't like you because of that. Jesus says, that's okay, that's going to happen sometimes. But if, if, you're, if you're falsely accused because someone is upset that you belong to me, so be it, that's all right. I was, I was in the West County Mall with Nathan years ago. He was still in college, our oldest son who's now 30. And we're walking through the mall, and this, this young uh, lady's walking the other way. And I'm looking at her. She's looking at Nate. She's not looking at me. And usually, you know, I'm not saying to my kid's the best-looking kid or anything, but he's passable. And normally, you know, if he sees, you know, somebody, they'd smile and nod and smile and nod. And she was, like, throwing darts at him with her eyes. And he was like, we walked right, right past her, and he, I can't remember her name. He was like, hey, Susie. And, hey, Nate. And she kept going. And I thought, okay, that was weird. That was odd. So we got a few steps down the hallway, and I said, what was that all about? She clearly does not like you. And he said, well, she was in high school. She went to Parkway West. They won like a softball state championship. And we played on the intramural softball team together, co-ed team together over at Indiana University. And I was pitching one game, and, and, I, and we got it, the guys got up to bat, and I threw four balls on the first batter walk. And the second batter got up, and I threw two balls, and I'm, you know, I'm behind 2-0. and oh, And she calls timeout, and she starts walking out to the mound like she's going to calm me down in a co-ed intramural softball game. I said, what did you do? I said, give me the ball and get back behind the plate. I said, no wonder she loves you so much. You embarrassed her in front of all of her friends. And I said, the problem is now she hates me because I was standing next to you. So you better go apologize to her so I don't look bad for being with you. See, I can always make it about me. But Jesus says, sometimes you're judged simply by, by the company you keep. And sometimes you're judged by keeping company with me, and it, and it comes out in a negative way. And you know what? That's okay. Don't be surprised by that. That is understandable. So there are right reasons for persecution, which leads me to believe that there are wrong reasons for persecution as well. And this is implicit in the text. It's not explicit. But I want to touch on this for just a minute. John, uh, James Montgomery Boyce said this one time, which I thought was tremendous. We should, not be we should be persecuted for Christianity, not the lack of it. <laughs> what does it mean to be persecuted for the lack of Christianity as we call ourselves disciples of Jesus? So I just thrown a couple of examples up here. Self-righteousness, hypocrisy, laziness at work, 
uh, rudeness in our relationships with other people, being obnoxious in, in the way we interact with people. All those things can, can point to a person who you know, claims to love Jesus but lives in a way that's diametrically opposed to what he taught. And so Peter picks up on this in one of his letters. says, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. We should underline Christ in there. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I mean, Peter gets it right down to where we live every day of our life. If, if you're infringing on other people's business, you know what? That doesn't point people to Jesus. So don't be persecuted for the wrong reasons. I told you earlier this year about these folks that showed up at Kirkwood High School with bullhorns, and they were screaming at the kids as they came out of the high school about how much they needed to, to come to Jesus, but it was all in an attacking, you know, you're terrible, you're evil, you're going to hell, da, da, and they were really going after them. And the kids were laughing at them. The kids were mocking him. The problem is that now, for, for anybody that is just kind of on the periphery of Christianity, they go, well, that's Christianity. <laughs> and so, you know, when Cindy went up to talk to one of them, you know, she's trying to say, you're kind of going about it the wrong way. And the guy started kind of attacking her. And he said, well, how, did you, how do you know you're a Christian? And she explained how she was a believer in Jesus. He said, well, you know, how did you come to Christ? And she simply said, well, not by somebody putting a bullhorn in my face. And I'm like, way to go, wife. That was really a good, good point. But there are reasons why people mock Christians that Jesus would say, yeah, you should be in trouble if that's the way you're living. Somebody should stand up and go, wait a minute, that's, that's not right. So let's be careful, brothers and sisters, to not make this verse mean something it doesn't. I'm not persecuted because I'm a bad husband. I'm not persecuted because I show up late for work. I'm, I'm not persecuted because I'm stingy and mean and rude to other people. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I also want to note that there could be an inappropriate absence of persecution. In other words, if, if we're going, you know, we're sailing along just fine and really nobody ever mentions anything about negatively about Christianity to me, it, there may be other reasons for that. And just let's kind of check this in our hearts. The first one is what I call a moat mentality. The moat's the thing you build around the castle, right? And the idea there is that I, that I don't let anybody into my life who's not a Christian. Therefore, I won't be persecuted as long as I keep myself at a safe distance from unbelievers. Now, practically speaking, you may be successful. The problem is you don't find anywhere in Scripture where it says we should build a moat and hide in a castle and only be around other Christians. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Jesus says, go into the world and risk your life making disciples. And if they take your life, so be it. Don't worry, I will take care of you, even through that. Outward focus is Christianity's focus by definition. The reason Green Tree was born here and the reason we are staying in this area is we believe God's called us to be a witness in this community, in this general part of St. Louis. Regardless of the outcome, regardless of how people accept it or not, we are called to move into our culture, move into our communities, move into our spheres of influence for the sake of the gospel. So if I'm not being persecuted because I don't know any non-Christians, I might want to rethink that philosophy. The second one I simply call hiding in plain sight. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, I think this is a tremendous uh, uh, insight in the Christian community. Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. The idea is that you keep quiet. You don't deny Jesus, but, but you just don't talk about him. You know, when you go to a dinner party, two things you don't talk about are politics and religion, right? Well, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, and if I look at the life of Jesus, wherever he was, whether he was sitting by the roadside 
with a woman at a well when there's nobody else around, or whether he had been invited to the, to the highest of the social order in Jerusalem for a very fancy, nice dinner party. Everywhere he went, he treated people the same. He told them about the love of God. He told them about the grace of God, and he called them to repentance and to believe in the new kingdom that was at hand. Jesus did not hide in plain sight, neither should we. Nor should we conform to our world so that they can't tell any difference between us and them. If my attitude about my money, my morality, my lifestyle, my sexuality, how I, how I run my business is no different from the rest of the world, if, if the, the notion of being merciful, if the notion of being pure in heart, if the notion of being a, per, a peacemaker stops when I walk out these doors and doesn't pick up again until I come back next week, I've misunderstood what it meant to, means to be a follower of Jesus. One of the early church fathers, a guy named Tertullian, was talking to one of his parishioners one day, and his parishioner was complaining about some of the persecution he was beginning to feel in his business. People were stopping their business dealings with him because he was a Christian. And he was telling his pastor, Tertullian, that he needed to give a little bit on this because, you know, after all, he, he needed to make a living, and he ended the argument with, I have to live. You know, I've got, to, I've got to kind of be quiet about my faith because I have to live. And Tertullian's response was brilliant. He said this, do you? Do you? Friends, if all my stock is in this life and in this world, then one of my chief goals is going to be to conform to this world so I do the very best I can in this world. And Jesus says, if that's your priority, if that's your goal, disciple, you might want to rethink what it means to follow me. Because, Jesus says, persecution has its blessings. Persecution has its blessings, and let's, let's look at those. Rejoice and be glad. Really? <laughs> okay, come on, Lord, wait a second. If, you, if, if you're persecuted like this, rejoice and be glad. So you're saying I could lose it all. You're saying that, that I could even lose my life, and I should, I should be happy about that. How is that possible? Well, one of the reasons that, that I can rejoice and be glad is because people are getting it. They're looking at my life and they're noticing that I'm with Jesus. And even though it rubs them the wrong way, and even though they want to do something about that, that should cause me great joy because it means the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is taking root in my life to the extent that people notice where my loyalty lies. Do people who know me casually or know me well, do they understand that I am with Jesus no matter what? Samuel Rutherford was one of the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith in the 1600s, but in his home country of Scotland, he was persecuted off and on his entire life, and his jailer used to talk about Rutherford's jig, and he said Rutherford would go into his cell after being beaten and treated badly all day, and he would dance for joy. Rutherford later wrote in his life, I learned more in the six months being in Aberdeen, which was, was the name of the prison, than I've learned all my life and all the sermons I've ever preached. I learned more about God's grace then than in any other thing I've ever, I've ever done in my ministry life. He was saying, you know what? People are seeing something about Jesus in me. And even though that's turning out negatively for me in the near, in the near uh, time, ultimately it points people to Christ and I should rejoice over that. The other thing is this, is not only do people notice, but our Heavenly Father counts us as with Jesus as well. He says this, Jesus says this, be glad and rejoice. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. That word great in the Greek literally means immeasurable. Now think about this. You have all of eternity, you have an everlasting life, 
which means it never stops. So just try to get your mind around that for a second. And during all that eternity, you have the opportunity to count your inheritance. And in all that time, you can't get it done. When Jesus says immeasurable, he means immeasurable. When, when I say immeasurable, I, I don't mean immeasurable. When Jesus says immeasurable, he really means it. He says you won't be able to experience, even in an eternity, all that the Father has for you. That's how great your reward is. So why should I focus on the near term instead of the long term when it comes to the question of persecution? When J.D. Rockefeller died, uh, somebody walked up to one of his business assistants, one of his bookkeepers, and he said, how much did Mr. Rockefeller leave? And the man's answer was, all of it. Good point. Where's my focus when it comes to following Christ? Not just in persecution, but in persecution in particular. Do I have to save my life? Do I have to guard my resources? Do I have to, to manage people's expectations of me so that maybe they know I know a little bit about Jesus, but I don't let anybody get too close for fear that they might not like me? Or rather, do I throw caution to the wind? Because it's actually the most sensible thing to do. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He's talking about persecution. This light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You should underline that part in your Bible. I, I, those are phenomenal words. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That, that's what persecution is doing for us. Why? Because it causes us to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Lord, we can't even get our minds around that promise. The notion that our Heavenly Father is saying, I know they're struggling now. I know sometimes people don't like them. I know sometimes people even do great harm to them. But I can't wait till they get home and see what I have planned. And then you're going to spend all of eternity showing us that. Father, we don't live in a, in a culture where we experience very much persecution. But when it does come our way, whether it's a snide comment or somebody deciding they don't want to do business with us or uh, someone making fun of us because they think we're naive and foolish. Help us to remember it's a good thing to be counted with Jesus. Don't let us be self-righteous, Lord. Protect us from arrogance. Protect us from, from being persecuted for all the wrong reasons. Help our focus and our gaze to be on our Lord Jesus. And trust him in any and every circumstance. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand and respond.